All right, so I'm just going to hide this for a moment. Um, you guys, I left two years ago from here to plant Sanctuary North. It's just two miles down that way. So I'm just going to shamelessly give a little plug. Do I have permission, Sarah? Five to seven people, maybe ten, uh, if you would love to come join Sanctuary North. I'm just going to make these up right now, but, like, you might consider joining North if this, this, and this. You ready? All right. If you are tired and you don't know how to tell anyone because it seems sacrilegious, but if you're tired of looking at kind of like a half-ascended Jesus Christ behind you at all times, please come to Sanctuary North. You just are looking at an elementary school auditorium. If you're skinny jeans, if you're denim skinny jeans, if you're going to be honest, you're hitting your 30s and they're not fitting anymore, and you want to get into the stretchy pants, half cotton, half denim, you can come my way, you are my people. These are elastic. Look down them. They're not. If you can quote at least half of the movie Anchorman with Will Ferrell, you are my people. You shall leave here today and join me at Sanctuary North. And finally, I thought of these this morning. I don't know if they're funny enough, but we have a lot of gourmet coffee in this city. Amazing coffee. A lot of people in this room are baristas, uh, own some of this gourmet coffee. I drink this gourmet coffee. But if you secretly feel oppressed because every once in a while you don't mind still just in your car, all alone, sneaking and drinking a culada from Dunkin' Donuts, you're tired of hiding it, you're tired of like the shame that you have and carry, you are welcome to come to Sanctuary North. We drink Dunkin' Donuts, we embrace you, we accept you fully. Come join us. Is that good? You ready? You can put that in the high card and Sarah will take care of that for me. So we go in this morning as we talk about this series, uh, which I love like a huge premise of it, is that we cannot grow spiritually unless we're going to actually grow up emotionally. Today is one of the toughest subjects, but also it is one of the best and one of the ones that we really should focus on as we continue to go into this series, is how to learn to grieve well. To be able to acknowledge the losses that we have had and to do something with those to express those, to mourn those, to do that business with God. Now, I have to be honest, I did a lot of work. Sarah is my, as uh, she said, Sarah and Greg are really good friends. On Fridays, I always like go over my sermon with Sarah. And I needed help with her because Sarah has had some great experience and also some great teachings on grieving. I'm a guy. I grew up Catholic and then conservative white evangelical Christianity. Some of that was good. Some of that was unhealthy. I don't know how to grieve as we talk about our family histories, um, I never saw my dad cry, you know, kind of like the macho man. We were still Catholic at that point. I remember going to my grandma's funeral. I am 10 years old. As a good Catholic, I'm kneeling before my grandma in her coffin. My dad puts his hand on her, and then he just starts weeping and crying and shaking. So he's shaking. I'm freaking out because I've never seen him cry. My grandma, who at that point I thought was dead, she's moving because he's shaking, I'm freaking out. I'm 10 years old. I'm like, is she alive? What's he doing? Is he dying? I'm so confused right now. Is this what grieving looks like? I, this is weird. We have a culture, we have a society where men are not allowed to grieve because that's just embarrassing. Women are also not allowed to grieve because that's just dramatic. We don't know how to grieve well. We don't talk about grieving. We don't talk about the biblical call and what's continually in the scriptures of lamenting. A book that I'm reading right now is by a black theologian named James Cone. 
It's titled The Cross and the Lynching Tree. He talks about his experience of like going back and rediscovering this awful history of the massacre of young black women and men called the lynching period from 1880 to 1940. Something we don't talk about, you don't learn your history about growing up. 5,000 African Americans lynched, killed, hung from a tree. 5,000. 1880 to 1940. You all, we're not talking about like 300 years ago. People are still alive when this was going on. And Cohn writes about this, the pain of looking back on that, looking at the pictures, scraping out this history and re-looking at it, and the grieving that took place is realizing this is what has happened to my people, and we've never even had room or space to talk about it. But you now flash forward to our time. Lynching period is over. Is an example to our black community. Uh, a young black man is shot. Something happens in the black community. And there is no way for them to grieve or to react because they're always seen as agitators. One black quarterback takes a knee and he is seen as ungrateful. And what we say in our society, we, don't, maybe we didn't say it out loud, but when we reacted to Kaepernick and all that happened, he just goes on a knee. It's like, that man's making some money. He should just go back and play the game. Shut up. Get over it. And so please hear me. This is racism. But the other thing I'm bringing out today, what, what I want us to focus on, is that we do not give any space for anyone to grieve. We don't do that because we're racist. That's a point. But we also don't give room for anyone else to grieve because we don't know how to grieve our own losses. So we sure as heck can't enter the pain and grieve and hurt and cry along someone else and their pain or their people's pain when we've never dealt with our own loss. We've never grieved our own hurt and loss. You with me? So our culture continually tells us, get over it. Bury it down. Get over it. But Jesus says the opposite. He says, you know what? Let me into it. I'll walk alongside you. I'll cry with you. I'll be with you just in that moment, and I'll feel that pain with you. If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. You can read it with me if you'd like. John chapter 11, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. I just want us to stop there for a moment. The shortest verse in the Bible and maybe one of the most powerful. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sweet, sweet Jesus, I just ask in this moment that you speak clearly, that every heart is open to what you want to say, and please, dear God, may I get out of the way. May there be none of my flesh in this, may it be your spirit moving in this place, convicting hearts, 
and releasing people to do business with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to say a couple jokes. I'm going to hit you in the gut a couple times with some hard points, and then I'm going to leave. I'm going to drop the mic and leave, all right? You guys ready? Uh, We only have a couple more weeks of this series, right? We've been doing the same series at Sanctuary North, and I'm realizing this is really good stuff, really good material, right? But you may become, I'm assuming, just like I have been doing a couple of times, like some things are being unraveled, uncovered, right? Like, ugh, alcoholism is in my family for a couple of generations. Maybe I should think about that, deal with that, give that to Jesus. I've got an anger issue. My dad had an anger issue. My great-grandfather, you know, like some work is being done. Some things are coming out. You feel the pain. You acknowledge there's something to do inside of you, but you don't know where to go next. Then you come the next week, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's that too. I don't grieve anything. Crap. <laughs> and then you come back the next week, right? Like, I'm assuming that could be some of you. So I want to encourage you. The whole point of why we're doing this is for you to do the work. Go to a home group. Use the workbook. Talk to people about it. Talk to Jesus about it. If you don't do that, this whole thing kind of reminds me of a wildly inappropriate night on my honeymoon. You want to hear about it? Raise your hand if you want to hear about a bad decision I made on my honeymoon 15 years ago. We've got five hands. All right, great. This is going to encourage you to get married, or if you do not want to get married, it's totally going to help you commit to a life of celibacy and singleness. You ready? All right, confession time. You ready? Is this going to stay here? Yes? I grew up in public school. I was a reasonably good kid, firstborn son. We'll get into that maybe later, but um, I didn't really drink a lot. Now, I'm not endorsing drinking in this story. Can you raise your hand that you can confirm this before I get into it? Because it's going to get weird. I am not affirming and encouraging you to drink and get sloppy. All right? All I'm saying is this. I didn't drink a lot. A couple times. I can count on my hand. And then I wanted to give my life to the Lord. I didn't know what to do. So I give my life and I go to a Christian college for four years. Okay? You're judging me right now. I say all that to say, I come out, I meet my wife on the mission field, we get married, we moved to Providence, actually, and um, she's from here, I moved up here from the school, and please hear me, 18 to 22, I did not have one alcoholic drink. You with me? Right? Or some of you are like, okay, that's not me. I did not have one drink. So we go on our honeymoon. I don't even have a job, I just moved to Providence, I've got an 88 Ford Escort, and the trunk is full, right? Like, I'm here, I'm ready to party. Uh, We go on a honeymoon. We're, like, going to just do something we can afford. My friends are like, you've got one chance, bro. You're going to be in ministry. Spend it all. Borrow some money. Go on an amazing honeymoon. Do your dream because it's never going to happen after that. You're going to have kids and then settle and just, like, you know, work. So he took his advice, and we went to Hawaii. We went to Maui for a full week. We didn't have any money for it, right? Like my parents had some old Marriott points. We used those. My honeymoon bed came out of the wall in the motel room. Classy. I've been keeping it classy, right? So we go on this honeymoon. We're in Maui. Context. We just spend the day getting fried under the sun. We don't have any lotion. My wife decides to get accelerator. I didn't realize Hawaii's kind of on the equator. So we're wearing accelerator. I didn't eat lunch. I didn't have anything to drink all day. I'm dehydrated. And we show up for dinner to a luau. You follow me? We go to this luau. It's like all you can eat, all you can drink. I'm like, you know what? I haven't had a drink. It's my honeymoon. I'm going to get a drink. I'm going to let loose. I'm going to have a good night. Here's the problem. I do not know what to ask for. 
So I want this tropical kind of like sweet and sour drink that I like remembered or thought of. It has a salty rim. I want a margarita. The problem is I can't remember that that's the name of the thing. So guess what I asked for over and over and over and over again? Tequila on the rocks. Yeah, you know where this is going? It came like a little coconut cup, so I thought it was cool. I kept drinking. I'm like, wow, this is a really strong margarita. I'm like four tequila on the rocks in. We're not talking this is like 1942 Don Julio. This is like Cuervo, you know, on ice. And I'm just drinking these things over and over. I began eating mahi-mahi with like a knife and a fork. At the end of it, I'm just like, so good. I I love you. And here's my point to this. Something's going on at this point in my body that I don't know what to do with, right? There's a bunch of mahi-mahi in there. There's tequila on the rocks in there. I'm feeling weird. I'm feeling ways that I've never felt before. I don't know what to do with it. And what makes it worse is then I don't know what to ask for. So I keep going to the bar and asking for tequila on the rocks. And as you can imagine, it wasn't the best night of my honeymoon. Back to this sermon. Back to this series. Things are going on inside of you. You don't know what to do with it. You don't know where to go next. You're maybe even afraid of asking for the wrong thing. And I want to encourage you very simply to talk to Jesus about it. That might seem oversimplistic, but I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I'm also going through this, right, with you guys. I'm realizing that I'm really high strung. I'm wound up tight. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got a lot of energy. Uh, I realize that I have a short fuse. I have a temper. I realize that my dad had that, and that was learned behavior I watched growing up. I realize that a whole other generation before that, my grandfather was the same way. There's these, like, legendary stories of him going off, you know? Like, you don't mess with this guy. I'm acknowledging that I'm at least three generations in if we have this, like, really pent-up energy, and you don't know what to do with it. So what am I doing? I'm acknowledging that that's a thing. I'm giving that to Jesus. I'm confessing the lie that I continue to let myself live into that I need to be responsible for everything. All of my family, all of my church, all the pain and hurt and all the things I deal with every day. It's all on me. I give that to God and say, you know what, that's a lie that I just kind of grew up with and inherited. And I take all the responsibility of myself and I walk around so high strung and then it comes out in unhealthy ways. So for me, it's walking with Jesus with that. It's confessing that. And then it's also walking to the truth by acknowledging that Jesus is walking with me. Amen? A couple simple things I do. like So that causes anxiousness. So I go for runs. I exercise. That releases some of the energy. My friend Sarah has helped me as I dealt with this. I carry a little cross. It's smooth. I grew up Catholic, and then I came to faith in a Baptist church, so I'm like, is this an icon? I don't know if this is right. I don't know what I'm doing. But this simple little thing that I carry in my pocket reminds me that Jesus is with me, that it's not all on me, that all the weight and the pressure I can give to him. And then when I'm really hurting or I really, like, got it bottled up, I talk to my wife. I even talk to my kids about it. I'm like, hey, guys, you know what? I'm struggling right now. I just need a little air. I need to walk away. I just need to chill out. I need to pray. Are you with me? I give that as an example that this is what we were supposed to do, an example like that of like, be honest, be vulnerable, give it to Jesus, and walk alongside others with it.
Amen? But back to grieving. Why should we grieve? Grieving is normal, and it's not the exception. This is a really big part of this. Uh, Pete Scazzaro says in the book, in the workbook you're going through, grieving is normal, it's not the exception. He says this, emotionally healthy people embrace grief as a way to become more like God. They understand what a critical component of discipleship, grieving our losses, is. Why? It is the only pathway to becoming a compassionate person like our Lord Jesus. So if you want to grow up spiritually, you actually want to become all that Jesus is calling you to be, you have to learn to grieve. And so I'm just going to give a working definition for lament. Because we don't use that word a lot, but it's pretty biblical. Lament is expressing great sorrow or regret and even grief about something or someone as in loss of life, as an example. This lamenting can be verbally expressed in wailing, weeping, crying. To lament means that something horrific has likely happened to you or to your people or your community. And it moves that person deep within their soul and it can be outwardly expressed in such a way that it is demonstrative and can't be overseen by others. Isn't that exciting? Don't you want to do that right now? Woo! Why should we grieve? Again, whether that's public or on your own, to actually mourn, acknowledge you've had lost and feel that pain and give it to Jesus. Why should we grieve? The perfect human who is also God who came to this earth to actually, exempl- to actually exemplify what you're supposed to live like and do, grieves, mourns, cries in this passage that we just read. Jesus grieves. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. I don't know if you know this passage, but in this passage, two days before this, Jesus is in another town. Now this man that had died, Lazarus, was actually a really good friend of his. His two sisters are really good friends with Jesus. There's another story, right, of Jesus eating in their house. People come to him. He's in another town doing his thing. People come to him and they're like, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is dying. Just a couple verses before this that we read this morning. Jesus says this, do not worry. I'm summarizing. Do not worry, he is merely sleeping. He says again, he is dead, but he will rise from the dead. I'm gonna raise him from the dead and I'm going to be glorified in this action. So right before the verse that we read this morning, this is what Jesus is claiming to his disciples and people that are telling him, you should hurry up and get to go see Lazarus. He's dying. What's Jesus do? It's one of these mysterious passages, right? He stays where he's at for two more days. He just like lets him die. He knows he's dying. He doesn't go. I don't know if you say these things. I'm a little dark and sarcastic. I read this passage and I'm like, what a weirdo. Why doesn't Jesus go? What is he doing? He just chills two more days. He knows one of his best friends is dying. He shows up to the community, and his friend Mary comes running up and is like, why did you not come earlier? You could have done something. Don't you heal the sick? Isn't that what you're going around doing, doing miracles? Why didn't you come? Weren't we close? And Jesus sees her crying. Jesus sees the community around them crying. And I want you to hear this. Jesus is able to enter this moment to stop, to be right in that pain, in that grieving, and in that suffering of these people. And he's able to cry with them. 
He's able to feel and embrace the pain and the hurt in that moment and be there with them. Now, this is one of the passages where I'm really thankful that I'm not Jesus. I would not have done this. Why would you say you're going to raise him from the dead and then come? And then why would you cry about it if you know you're going to raise him from the dead in a couple minutes? What a weirdo. What is he doing in this? He's just playing games? I think of this passage, and if I was Jesus, this is why I'm not Jesus, I would have been like, I wouldn't have like cried. That's a waste of time in the way I live. I don't know about you. Why are we crying and grieving? I already know why I'm here on a mission. I'm here to raise him from the dead. This is going to be like my final stamp that everyone's going to acknowledge that I am God, and then I'm going to be on this pathway to go get crucified because people can't handle it anymore, right? Jesus is on a mission. Why is he wasting his time crying? If I'm Jesus, I'm actually just kind of like making a public display of Lazarus. I'm like, look, he's dead, right, guys? I probably like drop him a couple times. Or I like throw him in the air and then like stop in the middle, you know, like Jedi trick. And then I raise him and I make sure everyone's watching. So like there's no question that I am God. You're now acknowledging it. Knowing you're going to doubt and go talk smack about it later. This is why I'm not Jesus. But you see, even though Jesus is going to raise him from the dead in a couple of moments, the strangest but yet one of the most beautiful images for us to grasp is that he's just able to be in the moment. He's just able to cry. You see, and then the response of this passage is, see how Jesus loved him. You see, Jesus in this exemplifies for us that it is directly connected how much we love somebody to how much we're actually able to grieve with somebody. Do you get that? Jesus loves him so much that he's able to actually cry and feel the pain of him and his family in this death, in this sad time. Why does Jesus grieve? He wept because he was human. Jesus, displaying to us as being a perfect human, he felt love, he felt disappointment, he felt loss and grief like us, and it's normal, and you're supposed to grieve and mourn it. He lost his friend in that moment. He shows us his love even in his tears. Jesus wept because his plan was never death or suffering. In this moment, I can imagine it hurts Jesus because this was never his plan. He never wanted Lazarus to die. He doesn't want any of us to die. He created us for life. Death is the result of the fall, of you and me saying no thank you to his beautiful plan. Jesus is able to feel the weight of that in this moment. And like I said before, why does he grieve? He is able to beautifully just be there for some friends in a moment and love them that deep that he's able to be emotional. He's able to cry. He's able to feel their pain and be with them. So we see Jesus cried and gave us a great example, right? We are able to cry. As guys, he was a guy. He was able to cry and mourn publicly with his friends. It's okay, and we're actually supposed to if we're going to be healthy Christians. Here's our problem. We don't know how to grieve. Great, Jesus grieved, great, but like, I don't know how to grieve. I've never been taught. As we talk about our family of origins, right? I tell you that story of my dad. You know, like, we've never been taught. I've seen one positive example of grieving in mourning, and I still don't know how to handle it. My wife is from Guatemala. I have watched Latino funerals. And I'll watch, like, when we lived in Guatemala, we were missionaries for some years, they would do this thing called a vigilio, like a, like a vigil, right? 
all night, if someone dies, everyone, not just the family, the whole community goes and just cries and mourns and sits with those people in their pain. Sometimes for days. And I remember, you know, for me being from like white culture, I like, I go to this and we're living in Guatemala and I'm like, dude, what are you guys doing? This seems really dramatic. Can we just go to like Olive Garden, split some breadsticks and like call it a day? He was old, right? Then we know he's going to die. Like, what are we doing? Again, in my, in my, what I've been taught, get over it. This is kind of a waste of time. Don't you guys have jobs? Like, what are we doing? This is weird and dramatic and blah, blah, blah. I learned from my wife's culture that you're able to stop and fully be with people when they have lost a loved one. But beyond that example, right, is a positive one. Our culture continues to just tell us, get over it. I mentioned in the beginning, but I think there's a picture of uh, Colin Kaepernick. He takes a knee in the game, right? Do you guys remember this? Raise your hand if you remember this story. Yeah, some of you? He takes a knee in the game, right? And it shows a couple things. Again, shows we're racist. (laughs) Shows that our flag must be the most important thing in our country. Like, if you are not pledging to the flag. Funny enough, Tebow's allowed to take a knee all day, man. He's good with it. But the black man takes a knee, and what do we say? Well, how do we react? How does the NFL culture and people watching react? He should just play and make the millions of dollars that he makes. He should just shut up and play the game. We do not let him grieve. We do not let him even take a knee. We don't even ask why he takes a knee. We're just so offended that he takes a knee. You see, our culture is an example. This tells us to get over it. That is a waste of time. That is not what we do. Get off your knee and play the game. That's what you're getting paid for. That's what we saw in that example. That's pretty fresh in our minds. It's not just NFL culture. It's our church culture. Right? I'm going to share a couple things. I'm going to hit you in the gut a couple times. You guys ready? Yeah? American Christian lies that are not in Scripture. Are you ready? Here we go. We are grateful or we're in sin, right? In church, we, we step it up a notch. We say, to grieve and to mourn is to actually not trust Jesus. I mean, honestly, I sing the worship songs too and I do it, right? Like, like kind of all that we do is just like we keep going. We just keep trucking, right? All things are working out. He's there for me. Like, if I question or mourn or am hurting, I must not be grateful in that moment. I must not be trusting Jesus in that moment. I must be in sin, There's no time for this. We are victorious in Jesus. I have a new life in Jesus, right? We tell each other even scriptures to feed it and keep going. Talk about a manifest destiny, American culture, just victorious, step over everything else and keep going and never deal with anything, culture. Yikes. This is not good. Here's another one. It hurts, ready? And I've said this, so I'm not just trying to make you feel good or feel bad. Everything happens for a reason. Sarah gave me this one. Where'd she go? Everything happens for a reason. This is not true. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. Racism, rape, mass murders, this is not God's sovereign plan to do something with. It is awful. It is wrong. There's no reason for it other than we are evil. And you are broken. See how I say it like that? And you don't feel so bad about yourself. 
This is not his plan. There's a lot of crap that happens in your life that has no sense. And you don't just get to put a bow tie on it and slap the cross on it. It's awful, it's wrong, it's a part of the fall. It's brokenness. You are allowed to feel that pain. Cry, mourn, weep, and lament the things and the injustices that have happened to you, to your people, to your family. Amen? You are able to take time and to express it. You are able and free and called to be with other people in those moments. You see, God doesn't just like, you know, plan to do all these things because he's got some other plan or a better plan. You didn't lose that baby so you could have a better baby afterwards. You know, there's a lot of stories we give like, you didn't lose that thing so you can get something better. Again, talk about American culture getting seeped into the church. Let's stop. These are lies. Let's go to the scriptures. My wife is getting her art degree at Rhode Island College, right behind our house. And uh, this is an illustration of what God can do. You see, God doesn't just plan all these awful things, right? But what he can do and what he does all the time is he picks up the broken, sinful fragments and garbage and pieces that we have left over. And he's able to redeem. He's able to bring his grace and his beauty and all that he does and make something beautiful out of our sin and bad decisions and loss and brokenness. You see, my wife uh, made a project a couple weeks ago, and she had all this random wood. Please hear me. She didn't say, I'm going to cut a tree down, and I'm going to show how that tree cut down is better for my artwork. No. She took old, disregarded pieces of wood, and she was lugging this stuff around for weeks. And I'm like, what is she doing? I'm like, dude, she's not going to make something out of that. I'm like, she's getting good. She's getting a little cocky, man. She ain't going to do nothing with this. Like, what is this? All this random blocks of wood in my house. I was getting annoyed because I have a little OCD, and like, I didn't like it in my house either. Just random wood all over the house. She takes all this wood, and in a couple weeks, she makes this. I'm like, dang, girl, she's got it going on, right? You see, my wife, as she's growing and being an artist, she's able to pull off all these old, fragmented, used, disregarded pieces of wood and make something beautiful that I couldn't even imagine that she could have do. And how much more does Jesus do? The original creator, the original artist. He picks up our junk and our mess, and our brokenness, and the things that we thought we could never do anything with, and he's able to redeem and to make something beautiful. That doesn't disregard your pain. I say all that to say that he will enter it with you and walk alongside you, and he can do things that you can't imagine. Amen? So, Jesus can do something with it. We should grieve. It's biblical. Let's talk about your family. How did your family handle loss? How did your family handle loss? Did you, you know, again, most of us didn't take like a Sunday school class how to take loss. You know, like, how do you handle it? How was it for you? I remember with my dad, right? That was the first time I saw my dad cry. I learned in that, nothing said, but like, that was really weird, and I hope I never do that, right? Just things unsaid, but learned, like, I really hope I don't melt down in front of everyone on a coffin. This was bad, right? Nothing was ever said, but I realized my dad never cries. Like, I guess I should never cry, right? I guess that's not like masculine, or if I do, it's really too much, and it was really weird. Another example of my parents, um, we went bankrupt as a child. My dad had a great job, um, whatever happened with that, like they just didn't handle their money correctly in that time. They never grieved the loss of those finances. That might sound really simple, but they never talked about it, they never mourned it, they never grieved it, they never felt it. And so for years, they dealt with that, 
and also frustration with all of life and with each other because they never just took a moment and realized they lost something that was secure in their life. How did your family experience loss? How did you learn to experience loss? I want to say this clear. There are different types of loss. And for some of us, it's like that one's really big. And for others, like that's really small. But like I still like really feel and that hurts for me. I want to be clear with grieving and loss as well. It can happen. Like it could have been something that happened to you like 30 years ago. You've never dealt with it. But God's calling you to deal with it. To bring it before him. To let it out. And he'll walk alongside you. There's never a timeline on grieving. Does that make sense? What you are called to do is to do that hard work when it comes up and when you're aware of it. So different types of loss, right? I'm going to just say a couple. I would love for you to take notes. I would love like a part of this to be something that you acknowledge or God brings to light of a loss that you need to deal with or never dealt with. Many of us had a loss of innocence and molestation and rape and some kind of abuse. Many of us had a loss of trust from our parents, from our deepest friends, from our pastors, from the spiritual leaders that we put up on a pedestal and they really used us, abused us, deceived us. We just move on to the next church and we never grieve it, we never talk about it, we never give it before God. Many of us, all of us, right, we've had a loss of friendship, right? You lost a friend and it was special and you did not get it back. And please hear me, when you don't grieve that well, in which you are called to do that biblically, you don't do that, it actually scars your next friendships because, like, you're not able to trust them. You bring your baggage from the other one. You're not able to, like, go there and actually be a real friend because you never grieved the loss of the former. You never did the emotional work that God wanted you to do in the previous friendship. Some of us, right, I'm just giving some examples, and I hope it's just like bringing some stuff to your mind. I hope God is using this right now. Uh, You've had a loss of personal significance. You used to have this job in this place. You were important, or you had this great thing or ministry or whatever, and uh, you don't have that anymore. For a period in my life, I ran an orphanage. It's like out of a book. You can't make this stuff up some of my life, and I acknowledge that. I ran an orphanage. I was the father of like 80 kids in Central America. I would go back to this orphanage for years and bring my church group back as a youth pastor. And I would drive up this mountain, and this is no joke, 80 kids would be waiting for me. And they'd be just screaming, Ricky, Ricky, Ricky. And I'd get out of the bus, you know, like a champion. And uh, they were just waiting because they knew I always brought pizza and gifts. So it was like kind of like Santa Claus. So it wasn't the healthiest thing. I still took it, though. I felt really important. The last time I went a couple years ago, this orphanage actually has arrived at the place that me and my wife always envisioned it to be. That it wouldn't be relying on two people that they would have house parents, and that these kids would be in homes, and each one would have families and take care of them. So I go back last time, I'm like, oh, you know, in my mind, I'm like, it's going to happen. Like, there's no one. It's just silence. All the kids are just in their houses, their little homes. I'm knocking on doors trying to find people, and like, no one's out, and uh, I'm not that important anymore. And praise God, like, they didn't need me anymore. That was an amazing thing. They remember me being bigger and larger than life. Now they realize, like, you're, you're like 5'7", got a squeaky voice. You're so much more intimidating years ago. What loss of significance have you had? Whether it's job, family, role in your life, financial provider. Talk about one we don't talk about in our life or in our culture is miscarriage. My wife and I experienced this. Talk about a thing as a guy that I had no idea how to experience because I was not carrying this baby. 
the whole time it felt weird, but I didn't know what to say about it. And then my wife had a miscarriage at home. Our third child. And I remember we went to the doctor, and the doctor's like, yeah, it happens all the time. It's natural. You know, go try again. I'm like, okay. Even our doctor is saying, it's normal. Get over it. Move on. There's something in our culture with just even miscarriage that uh, to the first trimester, what is it, 12 weeks, we don't even normally announce that we're pregnant because we don't want to deal with, like, talking about people if we lost a baby. We don't want to, like, make that public. We want to make that a thing. Let's bury it inside and grieve on our own and just never deal with it. You see, continually our culture is saying, get over it. And Jesus is saying, let me enter it and mourn and feel the pain with you. There's death of family. It hurts. Listen, here's one. There's parents' health changes. Your role with them changes. You're allowed to mourn that loss. Me and some other friends I have right now, we're able to share this together, and it's really good to do, and we're able to talk about it. No one gives us a class on, like, you hit your 30s, you're raising kids, you're in the busiest stage of your life, and then your parents' health hits the fan. And now you're babysitting your parents. Now you're parenting your parents. No one ever says anything to you, and you're like, holy crap. I'm allowed to say crap here, right? Andrew swears here, doesn't he? Like, I totally assume I'm allowed to say a couple words here. No? All right, here. You guys are looking weird at me. Like, holy crap. I'm going to say it again just to numb you. You don't know what to do with it, right? I'm like, I don't have time for this. I have no emotional energy, nor do I know how to engage this emotionally. You were my mom and dad. I went to advice. Now it's like, I got to watch you. I got to, like, deal with your fights. I got to realize all the weakness and brokenness that you have that I never knew you had, nor do I want to (laughs) know. Talk about something we don't talk about nor do we have time or space to grieve that our role with our parents changes. It sucks. It can be grieved. You can miss your childhood. And only by like, engaging that and fully feeling that and let Jesus do work in that are you able to be healthy and go forward and love them well. I mourned that I was never in a boy band. I really wanted to be in one. Backstreet Boys, man, New Kids on the Block, that was my thing. I was too short, and as you can tell, I don't have the voice for it. Some things can be mourned, right, that are actual loss. You'll never get back, and our culture says get over it, but there's actual things you can just go back to and be like, yeah, things will never be the same in that aspect or stage of my life. And you're able to mourn that. You're able to grieve that. You're able to feel that pain. There's other times where it's like you just never say goodbye to a chapter in your life, and it's all right to go back to that, to cry, to mourn that, and also like to thank God for that. You want to hear a weird one that happened to me? I grew up in the same home from kindergarten, a small town outside Detroit, from kindergarten through college. I go off to be a missionary in Guatemala, my parents sell the house, they move up to northern Michigan. I never go back to this house. I never realized it was a thing, but like I never said like goodbye to my childhood. Because I'm always like a guy in a mission, man. College, boom. Get married, boom. Have some tequila on the rocks, boom. Go off and be a missionary, boom. I come back, I'm a youth pastor, boom. I'm on mission, I'm on mission, I'm on mission. I drive up to see my parents. One time, I'm like, let's go see the house. I pull up to my house, right? This is so weird. I look down the driveway, and like my childhood flashed before my eyes or something. I weep like a baby. My wife is like very empathetic, but she's looking at me like, dude, what are you, bro, what's going on right now? You all right? My kids are looking at me. I'm so embarrassed because I'm not just like whimpering. I'm just like, mommy. You know, like I'm just letting it out. I don't know what to do with myself. I like, I'm wiping it away. I like try to refocus. I'm driving away. And I cry for like a half an hour just fighting through it. I never felt that weird in my life or embarrassed in my life. 
And you know what it was? And it took like years to figure out. I'd never said goodbye to my home. So simple or silly. I never kind of like closed that chapter of childhood and like the good memories that were there, the beautiful time that I had there, what God did in that home in that stage of my life. So what I do now is what I call like an Old Testament altar, which is something we don't talk about. Over and over again in the Old Testament, people would experience God, have this thing where God showed up, did something beautiful for them, and so they wouldn't forget it, they would build an altar. So if they went back to that place or someone went back to that place, you'd be like, oh, God did this in that time. That was amazing. God's still alive and real, right? little reminder, click for you if you have some short-term memory loss. An altar for me is now to take my kids and every couple years go back to that house, go back to that town, to share that with them and to thank God for his goodness and what he did in that stage in my life. You with me? Sometimes there's mourning and in that you're also able to remember what God did in that time. And praise him for it. So you've experienced loss, right? And you should mourn it. And I want you to realize in wrapping up that God wants to meet us in our mourning and grief and to reveal his heart to us. You see, when we grieve and lament well, it's kind of like working out a muscle. Do any of you guys work out, like run, do something? It's spring break and some of you are college students. I know you are. You're working on that spring body. None of you guys are? All right. Well, I'm running right now. I'm trying to run. I'm realizing my diet's terrible. When I'm running, right, or when I do some push-ups, this is what happens to me. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. My muscles get sore. Why are my muscles sore? That's a question. Why are my muscles sore? They're getting stretched. What happens when my muscles get stretched? They are expanding. They are growing. What happens as a result of that? I become stronger, right? It's a natural thing. You work out and you get sore, and that's a good thing because your muscles are expanding and growing. And Pete Scazzaro in this book, he shares this illustration about how your soul is elastic like a balloon. It is meant to stretch and to grow. And the way that you do that, a huge way that you do that, is by mourning and grieving well. And when you do that, God expands your soul, stretches who you are, grows you emotionally, and you're able to be more like him. You're able to love more like him. You're able to embrace other people's pain more like him. You see, when we grieve, when we, we acknowledge we have suffering, let Jesus in, we are closer to Jesus, the God of sorrows, as the Old Testament says. We're able to suffer with him so we can then experience resurrected life. Paul speaks of this mystery. He says, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians chapter 3. So when you grieve, you actually can become more like Jesus. You can become more intimate with him and become more like him. So to wrap it up, when we deal with our pain in a spiritually healthy way, when we grieve and lament and mourn well, we are able to enter the pain of others. The results are some of these. We are liberated from having to impress others. I need that every day. I don't know about you. We can be liberated from having to impress everyone else all the time. We're able to love more comfortably and be comfortable with the mystery when it comes to God's plan. We're able to say, you know what, I don't know the answer on that one. We are characterized by a greater humility and brokenness. We appreciate and find sacred all of life and its stages. We have fewer fears and a greater willingness to take risks. 
We have a greater sensitivity to the poor and to the wounded and to the marginalized. We can understand them because we are feeling their pain with them. We are more at home with ourselves and God. With our parish, we're planting very intentionally a multi-ethnic church. We talk a lot about the struggles that are going on in our city, as I know you are. And I just want to say this kind of in closing. If we are actually going to get beyond a Facebook post and an Instagram thing and, like, just talking and actually care and embrace the hurt and the brokenness and the pain of our friends that are around us from different colors and minority backgrounds, if we're actually going to give a rip and do something about it, we have to learn to grieve and mourn well. We have to learn to actually mourn our losses, grieve and be emotionally mature ourselves, so we actually get over ourselves and are actually able to embrace the pain of our brothers and sisters around us. We will not do that. It will stay at a Facebook post if we do not learn to do what we're talking about today, which is to grieve well, is to feel the pain and the hurt that you've experienced, to acknowledge the loss that you have had, and to let Jesus enter that space. Sunjah Ra says this, ministry in the urban context, acts of justice and racial reconciliation require a deeper engagement with the other. It's an engagement that acknowledges suffering rather than glossing over it. So here's some ways for us to mourn. You can take notes. And we're going to actually end our time today just giving you some space to do work with God. There's going to be a song sung over you for a moment. I just want to ask you to let God lead you in this time, to acknowledge your loss. I'm praying and thinking that maybe in this time God's brought something up that you haven't dealt with, to do that work with God, to give it to him, to mourn what you've never mourned, to let go of things that you've buried deep inside. Some simple ways of how you can mourn. Slow down. Slow down. Jesus, instead of just going and raising Lazarus from the dead, takes some time. And he cries with his friends. He's able to feel the pain in that moment. Uh, name the thing that hurts. Some of you guys are just thinking about it. Like, actually name it, write it down, tell someone. Name the thing that hurts that you have lost that you've never told anyone, you've never dealt with. Own that it's still there and take time to express how you feel and how it hurts. Thank God for the times you've had in the past. Like, I gave the illustration of my home. Here's a big one for me. Begin journaling. I can't write. I write like a child, so I type it, but I have all these documents where I'm just like, God, that's how I feel today. And I just let it out. No one will ever see it. It's between me and God, and I just release what I'm feeling, what I'm hurting, what I'm frustrated with, what I'm questioning him with. And I'm actually able to go back and look at it and realize how he met me in that space. I have a friend that uh, wanted to do some work and talk to uh, express some loss that they had with their mother. And so my friend sat in a chair and put a chair in front of him and just spoke to the chair like the mother was there and was able to express and share everything that was on his heart. The point is to create some space to actually acknowledge what you've never acknowledged. Give yourself permission to feel and talk about your anger and resentment and sense of loss. Just this last week as my wife's getting her college degree, she realized some loss that she had growing up in the Providence public school system. She realized she's never been allowed to feel it. She just kept trucking, kept trucking. Barry, Barry, get over, keep moving. But she actually just took some time with me, and I tried to stay there with her. And she's like, I was actually robbed in a couple of ways. These teachers said this to me, and like, I was never given the opportunity that I feel I should have had. 
She's finally growing in that space to be able to acknowledge pain and loss that she had and realize things should have been different. It's healthy. It's for your growth. I ask you to allow yourself to feel. And finally, I just ask you, honestly, a lot of us, straight up, we need to go to a counselor. I don't know why we're embarrassed about that. My closest friends and spiritually mature people, see a counselor, see a therapist. You are able to do that. That's not embarrassing. If we're going to be emotionally mature, you're allowed to talk to someone else about it. For many of us, it's talking to someone professionally about it. As we close, I just want to remind you this, that Jesus is the God of sorrows. The, the illustration I started with in the beginning was James Cone talking about this lynching period, right, in American history. As he went back, he got so angry, and he didn't even want to do the work. But this is what he writes, and then we'll be done with this. James Cone wrote this, reading and writing about the lynching nightmare, looking at many images of tortured black bodies, has been my deepest challenge and the most painful experience I have had as a theologian. At times, it was almost too heavy for me to bear. The more I read about and looked at what whites did to powerless blacks, the angrier and angrier I became. Paradoxically, anger soon gave way to a profound feeling of liberation. Being able to write about lynching, please hear this, liberated me from being confined by it. The cross helped me to deal with the brutal legacy of the lynching tree. And the lynching tree helped me to understand the tragic meaning of the cross. There's going to be a song sung over you. And I just ask you to do some business with God right now. I ask you to acknowledge that so many times this like manifest destiny, just conquering victorious Christianity that we grew up in, doesn't acknowledge that we ever have to go to the cross. We just slap a bumper stick around and keep going. Get over it, get over it, get over it. But Jesus invites you to open your heart and to let him into it. So I remind you right now that no one is closer than Jesus Christ, your closest friend, the Lord that came to earth, that felt your pain, and that cried for you. He's, along, he's there to be with you. I ask you to take a moment. Let the song be sung over you. And I give you, in Jesus' name, permission to feel to talk to him.